This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. And with Parliament in recess and the government doing nothing except not preventing flooding, breaking up the BBC and hiring eugenics-loving weirdos, uh, now seemed like a good time to check in on what is happening on the other side of the Atlantic. If you thought the Labour leadership contest was a long-winded, underwhelming affair, just wait till we get stuck into the race to be the Democratic candidate to take on Donald Trump. We'll discuss the state of the special relationship and ask Henry Z who swapped Westminster for Washington three weeks ago, how he is getting on learning American. Uh, He's also just started a US elections email. It's like Redbox, but he only does it once a week. To sign up to that and Redbox or any other of the Times uh, brilliant uh, emails, you can go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash bulletins if you're a time subscriber before that a big hello to everyone who rated and reviewed the podcast last week as you were instructed to do a uh, special cheerful hello to Catherine landell bergen street and phil gs for being so nice it would make me blush to repeat what you said but a slightly less special hello to jimmy the fox who apparently doesn't enjoy sycophantic giggling and hello to rubber richie uh, but he won't hear it because he's unsubscribed Shame. Uh, So to this week, I'm joined on the line from Washington by David Charter, the US editor of The Times, and Washington correspondent Henry Zeffman, and from California, Ben Hoyle, the US West Coast Bureau Chief for The Times, which sounds very glamorous, but I have been to the garage he works out of. I might have to get some one of you to put on like a Scottish accent so you don't all sound the same, but we'll see how we get on. First of all, if people haven't been paying full attention to where we are in the in the race to find the, the Democrat candidate who's going to take on Donald Trump. David, can you just talk us through Iowa and New Hampshire? What is a caucus and what happened? 
Right, a caucus is American for a big old mess where nobody really knows who uh, who has been elected. So what we had in <laughs> Iowa, the traditional opening shot in the whole primary season, which is when you choose your candidate for your party to fight the presidential election in November, starts in late January, early February in Iowa. So the caucus basically means that you all go to a, a building and there were nearly 2,000 voting places and you form a group uh, with like-minded people for your candidates. And then midway through the evening, you have a chance to change your mind and persuade people from a group which hasn't made viability, which is a 15% share of the total, to join your group and boost their total. And that's when mayhem ensues People start leaving, people arrive and decide to join in. The numbers get messed up and the app that was introduced this year didn't work properly. And it took the Iowa Democratic Party more than a week to come up with the results, which was that Pete Buttigieg, this young mayor from uh, Indiana, narrowly won on the number of delegates that he earned. But Bernie Sanders won on the actual votes cast. And if you're wondering how that happens, we are a little bit as well. And it's been challenged by the Sanders people because the delegates is quite an important number. Those are the people who go to the quadrennial uh, Democratic convention in the summer and actually pick the candidate. So the, the chaos in Iowa somewhat overshadowed the next the next battle in New Hampshire, which is the traditionally the second state to choose, where in a much more straightforward pencil and paper, first past the post vote, Bernie Sanders topped the poll, narrowly ahead of Pete Buttigieg. The two interesting things about the New Hampshire race was the emergence of another Midwesterner called A.B. Klobuchar, who came third, a good third, uh, with her very centrist position. And the fifth place for former Vice President Joe Biden, who up until then, his whole pitch had been about, I'm the most electable candidate, I'm the guy who everybody wants to vote for to beat Donald Trump. He performed pretty badly in Iowa coming third, and he, he performed terribly in New Hampshire coming fifth. Wow. I'm beginning to wish I didn't ask. So what do we normally, these first two, Iowa and New Hampshire, they are sort of what indicators. If you get a win in the bag early on, then this might give you some momentum, but it's quite difficult to gain momentum if no one's quite clear who did win. They traditionally go first in a very long cycle because every state is going to have a vote and they're only very small states. So what they normally serve to do is to winnow down the field and show who really has a shout in the long term. And the money that is so vital to an American political run tends to follow the more successful people in these early states. The Biden camp, because it did so terribly, is pleading for all the commentators and all the Democratic Party voters to look at the first four states, because we're moving on uh, later this week to Nevada and the following week to South Carolina. And then we get to the really uh, to a, the first really big acid test. It's called Super Tuesday. It's the first Tuesday in March when 14 states with about a third of the whole vote, of the whole number of delegates, uh, have, have their vote all on the same day. And so the two early states, although they're tiny states, they traditionally act as a pointer towards uh, who's got momentum. Just for the benefit of listeners, who is it who actually gets to turn up and vote in these primaries? So Iowa is a Democrats-only state. They don't really have party membership in the same way here as they do in the in the UK. So when when people register to vote, they can register as a Democrat or as a Republican or as an independent. So in Iowa's case, 
registered Democrats can go and caucus. In New Hampshire, registered Democrats and registered independents can take part. And New Hampshire, as a result, has more of a reputation for slightly eccentric, favouring, independent-leaning, more moderate, perhaps slightly more idiosyncratic politicians. It's worth just saying on Ira and New Hampshire, as David says, you know, their usual role is to winnow the race, but basically no top-tier candidates have dropped out as a result of Iowa and New Hampshire. So Iowa taking so long to actually give us the results, and a fortnight on the results still haven't been finally agreed, basically meant that that the effect of Iowa didn't didn't transpire. So Amy Klobuchar, who came fifth, probably if Iowa had ascertained that she'd come fifth within the couple of hours that they usually do, you know, she would have been under severe pressure to drop out. Instead, there was a total sort of panic on all the on all the very excitable news networks here. So Amy Klobuchar went straight on TV, declared that she was going to New Hampshire with the wind in her sails, and actually did quite well there. New Hampshire afterwards, I mean, a few candidates dropped out, but they were candidates who probably should have dropped out months ago. Uh, and for whatever reason, were, were carrying on in New Hampshire in the vain hope that they'd have a turnaround. So, I mean, Ira New Hampshire, these traditional proving grounds for politicians, you know, they've exposed Joe Biden's weaknesses, but they haven't really performed the role that they performed in previous cycles of winnowing the field to, to two or three leading contenders. So, Ben, how many are still on this uh, circus as it heads in your direction in uh, Nevada this weekend? As, as the guys were saying, it's it's still an enormous field. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> David and Henry, do one of you want to help him out? We've got seven candidates on the ticket going into Nevada. The ghostly apparition of an eighth candidate called Michael Bloomberg hanging over the whole process. He, start, he entered the race too late to join in with the first four early states. And he's going to be on the ballot for the first time on Super Tuesday, uh, which is going to be a big test of whether this this system that's run for 40, 50 years in, in exactly the same way is still fit for purpose because we have a very modern, almost virtual campaign of enormous spending on advertising by Michael Bloomberg to raise awareness of his campaign entering uh, later on. As, as, the, as they were saying, that the traditional filtering role just hasn't happened. So everyone going into Nevada can make a case for why they have some form of momentum or a reason why you should still be taking them seriously, except arguably Joe Biden can't really claim any momentum, but he can be looking, he can be pointing forwards to South Carolina saying it's far too early to judge me uh, now because we haven't yet got to the sort of state where I'm going to do fantastically well compared to the rest of the field. So everyone has a story to tell on Wednesday night. We think that Bloomberg might take the debate stage for the first time, which will be a major moment in this uh, stage of the race. Just before we move on to Bloomberg, uh, Ben, what's happened with Joe Biden? Because when we spoke, I think back, it was like July the 4th last year, and we did a sort of Who Could Beat Donald Trump podcast then. Uh, both you and David were talking about how Joe Biden was a poor performer. He was slow on his feet. He was struggling to get through. And yet he's still still going. We overestimated how good a con- candidate he was at the time as well. <laughs> <laughs> Worse on his feet and less impressive than, than anybody imagined. And yet he's still in it. But that's that's a function of how big the field is. If there was if it was just Biden and one other candidate. Uh, you know, as it was four years ago with Hillary and Bernie Sanders, he would look dead and buried, I think now. But it's because the votes are so spread out among multiple candidates that it kind of keeps everybody alive. And that's partly the Democrats have a different primary system from the Republicans that uh, 
with each state contest, you can several candidates who do well can pick up delegates, whereas uh, it's not a winner-takes-all process. So each, even if you're doing badly, unless you're doing disastrously, you're still picking up sort of points towards the final tally. Whereas when Donald Trump ran away with the field four years ago for the Republicans, he would, he would eke out a small victory, but then get all of, all of the delegates for that state. So he was able to get a huge advantage and that helped to, to give him momentum in the Democratic race. That isn't happening. Back in July as well, uh, Ben, I asked uh, you and David who you thought was going to be the candidate and whether or not they could beat Donald Trump. Well, I won't embarrass David by saying by reminding him that he said Kamala Harris would uh, make it. We won't bring that up. We won't bring up that the fact she didn't even make it till the end of last year. However, you said Elizabeth Warren, you thought we had some of the potential. How is she getting on? It, it hasn't panned out exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she was on fire till about, was it October or September? And it just, she had this catastrophic sort of dithering over her healthcare policy. It was made catastrophic because she'd been so organised and so, upfront about everything else up until that point she had an answer for everything. her her slogan was you know i have a plan for that and it was all about how just how thought through her campaign was and then this hugely important policy she sort of fudged it and the voters never really forgave her for that so she's she ended up basically taking bernie sanders roughly bernie sanders healthcare policy and being destroyed by the voters by, by, uh, and the pundits when she tried to explain and justify it. Whereas Bernie, who has got essentially the same policy and has never really gone into any of the detail that she went into about it, has therefore not taken the same flack that she's taken for it. Henry, how, who are you seeing is, is doing well? So, so far, we've just seem to have listed a load of people who aren't, aren't having a particularly good campaign. Well, Saunders is, is the front runner. I mean, it's sort of, it's weird to say, given that he's, he effectively won Iowa, uh, or won the most votes in Iowa, and he did certainly win New Hampshire, and he's the favourite to win in Nevada, uh, and is probably going to come second at worst in South Carolina. And yet it's somehow floating under the radar that Bernie Sanders is the front runner. I mean, that's extraordinary. He's, ne- he's not actually a registered Democrat. Uh, he's been an independent uh, first congressman and then senator from Vermont for about 30 years. And he is totally out with what the Democratic Party has looked like and been forever, really. And, you know, he ran as a totally quixotic candidate against Hillary Clinton in 2016, in fact, because he was so annoyed that Elizabeth Warren wasn't running and thought that someone should run to put their sort of ideas out there. And now is is the front runner four years on. Having had a heart attack. Right. In October. And what's so peculiar is that the point at which he had a heart attack was kind of when his poll rating started to rocket up. He wasn't really doing very well. Uh, he had a heart attack, uh, went into hospital, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, this incredibly popular first-term congresswoman from New York who'd been weighing up whether to endorse him or Elizabeth Warren, he had his heart attack and she went, OK, Bernie needs us, endorsed him at this rally in New York. And it's, and it's only been upwards ever since for him. And look, there, there are compelling reasons why he might not end up as the nominee if the non-Sanders part of the field, broadly the moderates, can coalesce around someone at some point. Uh, then, you know, there are probably more Democrats who want to vote for someone who's not Bernie Sanders than Democrats who do. But for as long as they don't coalesce, we are in the extraordinary situation where a 78-year-old 
who calls himself a democratic socialist, which is pretty damn rare in the US and certainly in US politics, you know, could be the person to take on Donald Trump. And so you then end up with, you know, perhaps the broadest American presidential election ever. I mean, we were talking about winner takes all Republican primary system, but you are going to have, you know, a winner takes all presidential election between democratic socialism and, you know, whatever you want to call Donald Trump. I mean, we talk about Joe Biden doing terribly. And one reason for that is that he's really old. You know, Joe Biden is, is, I have to say, it's sad to see, but he's clearly in, in mental and physical decline. I mean, I went to lots of his events and he, he struggles for words sometimes. And there's no shame in that, but he's 77. Well, Bernie Sanders is 78 and had a heart attack in October. And yet somehow has these extraordinarily energetic rallies. Now, mm. rallies are not everything, right? These are rallies of the faithful, but contrast them with Joe Biden events. I mean, a Joe Biden event I went to in New Hampshire where there were very few people there and the only person who did want to talk to me was a former Tory health minister called Sir Simon Burns, who was inexplicably <laughs> there with a clipboard. <laughs> He's a big old mate of uh, Hillary Clinton, isn't he? Simon Burns? He is. And he gives you a sense of how, how the UK political spectrum is just in a different, generally more leftwards place than America's. If, you know, a lifelong Tory MP uh, out here is sort of on, on the right of the Democratic Party rather, rather than sees himself as a Republican. David, can we get any sense of where the Democrats are on the sort of spectrum? If Bernie Sanders, the 78-year-old Democratic Socialist, is coming first... Pete Buttigieg is half his age, and they still really don't know what to do about Donald Trump, so they're sort of still trying everything. Yes. I mean, the overwhelming imperative for every single Democratic voter is to turf out Donald Trump. For a large majority of them, it completely overrides all policy and ideological positions, apart from perhaps a a fair-sized chunk of of the Bernie Sanders support, which is extremely tribal and and loyal to Bernie Sanders. And as we saw in 2016, they were rather reluctant to get behind Hillary Clinton and may have contributed to Donald Trump getting into the White House. Donald Trump had an offer to the the sort of blue-collar and an appeal to blue-collar America that was more in line with what Bernie was, was, you know, the pitch and the people that he was aiming at that, that, than what Hillary Clinton was doing. The real sense of energy in the party is behind, as you rightly say, and, and, and as, as Iowa and New Hampshire have identified, it's behind this old stager who built up a big and loyal following in 2016 and is now consolidating that. That's Bernie Sanders. And he really has got a lot of volunteers. They're working for nothing. You know, they're, they're going through the, the snow in minus minus six degrees in New Hampshire, knocking on doors. And the Pete Buttigieg campaign has motivated uh, wherever he's been, wherever he's been. And then we've got this extraordinary thing coming along of the, of the Bloomberg campaign, which is having to pay to generate the same levels of uh, activity from his, um, his core team. But it's paying twice as much as other campaigns. It's buying up all the staff of all the people like the people who were for Kamala Harris before she dropped out have all gone over to the Bloomberg, or lots of them have gone over to the Bloomberg team. And to answer your question, the party doesn't know where it's heading and will try and will try and work this out after Super Tuesday when they see um, who has got the, the most support, because it is a party that could it could buy into the Bernie Sanders revolution. Or somebody like Buttigieg, who kind of tries to straddle the two camps. He wants to be a fresh face, but is not a revolutionary fresh fresh face. And that's what then that's what we'll know after after Super Tuesday. There's a sort of a, a fundamental split in approaches that, that's been bubbling away in the background for months between uh, do you look for a candidate who can broaden the electorate, inspire 
people who don't normally vote to turn up and vote. And that would be Bernie would score very highly there, theoretically, in terms of just generating excitement, building on the sense of the movement that he's already created. Or do you look for a candidate who can persuade people who might otherwise vote for Donald Trump to come over to your side? And the thinking being that for that, you need someone from the opposite side of the you know, intellectual spectrum from from Bernie, someone who's, you know, more conciliatory, more centrist, more likely to take uh, a, a fairly cautious approach to the economy rather than, you know, completely reshaping it. And there's there's it's extraordinary, really, to be at this stage of the race and uh, and have such a gigantic divergence in yeah, possible yeah. approaches they, they, bit, don't know, they don't know whether their appeal is to these these blue collar voters who were tempted by trump and who may not vote again or will this sort of revolutionary approach appeal uh, you know turn them out and and get young people to vote in in bigger numbers because they didn't vote in big numbers historically or do they go for a centrist who can who can attract some of the disaffected conservatives to, to their their team you know to their vote still to come exactly how well is michael bloomberg doing and who could beat donald trump plus Three weeks after Henry arrived in America, what's he missing about life at home? We'll be back after this. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Ben, you were at a big Bloomberg rally last week. I mean, he is also, we should also put out, he is also 78, although hasn't, as far as we know, recently had a massive heart attack. Um, is he generate beyond the money, which can obviously do a lot of the heavy lifting of a campaign, is he capable of generating the same level of excitement as Bernie? In a different way. So uh, <laughs> skeptics, skeptics about Bloomberg would say that to have a heart attack, you probably needed a heart in the first place. <laughs> Seeing him live, he is a, a charisma-free zone. He is extremely certain of himself. He is completely um, in command uh, of what he's doing. Uh, he has the air of someone who is used to being listened to, who is used to giving orders, who has a very clear um, and original strategic mind. And that's borne out by the, the very unusual approach he's taken to this campaign. He is He's impressive in a completely different way from Bernie. So Bernie... As the guys were saying, it's, if you go to a Bernie rally, it's 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 almost like a rock festival atmosphere there, and you're swept along by the optimism of it and the zeal. I think with Bloomberg, it was, it was an appearance in a in a courtyard um, community center in Compton in South Los Angeles, uh, which is famous as you know the the origin of gangster rap. Uh, it's famous for crime uh, and poverty and uh, for being largely non-white. It is. As far as you can imagine, away from the image of Mike Bloomberg, the white billionaire from New York. But at the same time, 
everyone in this courtyard, you, you couldn't really find anyone who was passionate about Bloomberg, but you could find a lot of people who were really excited that for the first time they could see a route to beating Trump. And so there is a genuine excitement there. It's just not an excitement about him personally. It's an excitement about the potential that he might represent. Because there's there's a huge number of people in America who've been getting more and more depressed as the <laughs> campaign has gone on at seeing the candidates sort of tearing each other apart and Trump getting stronger as they tear each other down. And Bloomberg's appeal is that people look at him and think, this guy could actually do it because he's got so much money and he's not going to take a backward step in front of Trump. And he's a genuine billionaire with a genuine business track record, which will play well as a, a contrast to, to Trump's business credentials. And there were people there who were from the very progressive side of the party. And there was someone I spoke to who was a Republican, who was a registered Republican, who, hated, who, who was there to hear Bloomberg because he wants to get rid of Trump. You know, he, he appeals to a very broad spectrum of people who just are desperate to get Trump out. And, and that's where Biden and Bloomberg's support is basically inversely proportional. I mean, Bloomberg was nowhere a few weeks ago because Biden still looked pretty strong. And Biden's pitch was basically that, which was, let's forget our internal ideological differences. We just need to beat Donald Trump. People know me. People like me. I'm experienced. I was vice president for eight years. You know, Biden was the inevitability candidate. And Iowa dealt a blow to that inevitability. New Hampshire dealt an even more severe blow to it. Uh, now he might come back a bit in Nevada and South Carolina, and that would be very interesting. That would be a challenge for Mike Bloomberg, because Bloomberg's not really campaigning anywhere until the Super Tuesday states, which is about a fortnight uh, away. And if Joe Biden can manage to not come fourth or fifth in Nevada and South Carolina, then, and South Carolina's the, the Saturday before Super Tuesday, uh, you know, then Joe Biden will actually go into Super Tuesday with a lot of momentum. And that's there's that thing again, which is the non-Sanders vote getting split. Because if you're someone who wants to back the candidate who's not Sanders, the moderate who you think can beat Trump, then you know, in a Super Tuesday state like, say, Virginia, you're then going into Super Tuesday a bit confused about whether you're a Biden person or a Bloomberg person. Bloomberg has done really well out of the failure of Joe Biden. But again, also, you know, Bloomberg, a bit like Bernie Sanders, I mean, Bloomberg is not has not been a Democrat very long. Uh, he was a Republican mayor of New York City for his first term and a half, then became an independent, but an independent with the Republican nomination. He didn't endorse Obama in 2008, though he did in 2012 while criticizing his radical agenda. So it's not just, you know, yes, Bloomberg is a, you know, in many ha has a case for why he could be the person who beats Trump. But, you know, it's not just. Democrats perhaps swallowing ideological differences to, to, to back him. You know, they're really holding their noses in some cases. Uh, and, you know, if he does make it into this debate on Wednesday, you know, one by one, the Democrats on that stage, his rivals will say, well, what about your record in, in New York? You know, what about stop and frisk, which has become particularly controversial? I mean, Elizabeth Warren is the only candidate on that debate stage who Mike Bloomberg endorsed one of her opponents in a previous election when she won <laughs> 2012. Republican Mike endorsed yeah. Scott Brown, the incumbent Republican senator who she defeated, who is now a, a Trumpite ambassador to New Zealand and Samoa. So um, no, Bloomberg has a difficult and complicated history. But you know, he is, he's been tailor-made for the collapse of Joe Biden. And if, if Biden doesn't recover, then Bloomberg has a, has a serious prospect of going far. And for this moment in history, it's almost impossible to imagine any other point in history where the Democratic Party would 
pick the tenth richest man in the world, who until recently a Republican, who's got no charisma. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're you're making him sound like an excellent choice. Just before we move on to talk about um, Henry's glorified holiday that he's on, I'm going to ask you the same question as I asked you back in um, July, but you've got slightly more knowledge now at your fingertips. Who do you think will end up uh, being the uh, Democrat candidate? And will they be able to beat Donald Trump? Uh, let's start with you, David. Well, if they do hold their noses and pick Bloomberg, it, he'll probably, I think he will beat Trump in a, in a classic showdown. On the other hand, they may end up with, um, say, Pete Buttigieg, um, who may struggle against Trump. I'm sorry, I've, to- I've taken two names there. Sorry, but um, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll go for Bloomberg. We should say that he has got a good track record in some policies which are very attractive to Democratic voters. He's been a very strong um, campaigner for, for more gun controls. And also he's pumped a lot of money into climate change causes. So he, 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 there's a lot he can, there's a lot of positive things that he can campaign on. Henry? Bernie Sanders. I don't think he would beat Trump. Well, you've, you've got quite the mixed bag left, Ben, to choose from. So I'm not allowed to pick either of those two. Yeah, you can if you want to. I'm not, I'm not going to force you to stick with Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> I think Bloomberg would have the best chance of beating Trump, um, but Bloomberg is is such an unknowable quantity because until we've seen him in the race properly, it's very hard. He's he's had this honeymoon period, so he hasn't really been vetted and attacked and uh, in the same way as the other candidates. And we haven't seen how he would respond to that sort of uh, treatment. But and but if Bloomberg has a great out, outing on Super Tuesday then I think he'll quite quickly acquire a sort of sense of inevitability, at least in the, in the moderate lane. And then it'll be him against Bernie, and that will be a dramatic showdown, and probably Bloomberg will get the, the numbers. If, if Bloomberg flops on Super Tuesday, then his whole gamble hasn't paid off. I do think it's possible still that Pete Buttigieg or even Amy Klobuchar, um, who's a moderate that we haven't spoken about today, could come through just because of this desperation in the party not to hand the nomination to Sanders. And having seen both Pete and Amy in Nevada uh, last week, um, they have some momentum and they're both great performers. The only thing, well, the big thing they struggle with is convincing people that they could actually win. But as you rack up victories and good results, you start to acquire that sense of, electability and if either pete or amy could develop that sense of electability then i think they could beat trump because they're appealing to middle of the road republicans and independents well that's good that's a good spread of names there and we'll come back and um, check in with you in november to see how well you all did um henry you arrived in the midst of all this what three weeks ago yeah about three weeks uh, three weeks ago today in fact yeah you touched down left your suitcase in washington and immediately flew to iowa that's right. How's it been? How are you getting used to Americans? It's been brilliant. I mean, what is extraordinary about Iron New Hampshire is simultaneously the scale of American politics is huge. It is a vast country. That's not an original insight. Uh, the Times didn't need to send them to America to cover that. But you could have just looked at a map, Henry. You, you, you have more of a feel for why American politics is the way it is when you're driving from Des Moines, which is Iowa's capital city, towards the west of the state, to Cedar Rapids, which is a big city in the east of the state. And there is basically nothing on that 150-mile 
straight stretch of interstate either side of you other than cornfields and windmills uh, and the old tiny town. So the scale is huge, but also the the events in Iron New Hampshire, apart from Bernie Sanders's rallies, are incredibly intimate. Uh, it is such raw retail politics. I mean, you know, seeing a former vice president grubbing for the votes of a group of about 12 people in a relatively small town is really quite something to behold. And, you know, it's not it's not eccentric that he's doing that. You know, those 12 votes could end up being really important or, you know, two weeks worth of three events a day of 12 votes at each event really does end up being important. I mean, I was quite a small state, New Hampshire, even smaller. And uh, I think it's good that those candidates are tested in their that sort of retail environment. I think, uh, you know, many of them are, are much better at it than I could ever conceive a British politician of being. Uh, I think it's fashionable to think that American politicians are, are, are sort of bozos who, who, who are, you know, dimmer than, than the British like. I mean, not so far in my experience. I mean, really not. I mean, you know, they're capable of speaking across a range of issues. I mean, I know we're not addressing Trump here, but they're capable of speaking across a range of issues. But I can't imagine many MPs, many ministers who I encountered in the past few years being able to do. But you also had your first Trump rally. But I did have my first. Tell, so, tell us about your first so Trump rally. So in Des Moines, rally. I did. I went, I went to a Trump rally, which was one of the strangest things I've ever been to. Actually, I had been to, to something like that before because it is basically a stadium rock gig. I mean, like right down to the age demographic. It's like going to see Fleetwood Mac at the O2. You know, and there are there are like, you know, people who have driven from all over because it's the most exciting thing to happen to them in several months. Uh, and, you know, people, friends and family, roughly their age, you know, there's a queue for popcorn. There's an undercard, you know, warm-up acts. You know, you start with like the, you know, it started with a, a sort of junior Iowa state senator. Uh, who, yeah, who, the, girl, the girlfriend of his, of his, of his older son. Yeah, <laughs> we had, we have a girlfriend of, of Dom Jr., uh, we had someone who came on stage and said, Iowa, are any of you uh, are any of you tired of coastal elites coming here and telling us what our values should be? Which I thought, and they went mad. And I just wanted to walk around and ask them which coast they thought New York uh, was on. But never mind. <laughs> um, and, um, it is basically a night out. And once you realize that those rallies are, are, are like an exciting night out, more than they are people you know who are interested in in supply side economics you understand how donald trump sort of feasted on the republican party and and, and consumed it and and why trump still looks like the overwhelming favorite to win the election even if other people could beat him is that he he understands better than anybody else that uh, so long as you're um entertaining uh, and and uh, grabbing people's attention, you have a gigantic advantage over a candidate who who is engaging on on a, a more kind of traditional political level. And there was a there was a brilliant uh, article in Vanity Fair a few weeks ago. Uh, I can't remember which political writer it was, but he, his insight was that uh, we talk a lot about the divisions between left and right in American politics or between black and white uh, or, or between coastal states and non-coastal states. But actually, the biggest divide in American politics is between people that follow it and people that don't. And that the people that don't is a much, much larger number than the people that do. And it's easy for us that, uh, you know, pouring over every fine detail of what's going on here and, uh, and, and, and for all the pundits on television to who, who focus minutely on the tiny fluctuations in the horse race. But for the vast majority of Americans, they're, they're barely paying attention to this race yet. And so far, Henry, what's been the worst thing, the weather or the coffee? 
<laughs> the, the coffee itself is okay. They they sort of like filter coffees, uh, but the filter coffee is it's not terrible. But they then fill it up with cream. Uh, or, or, but it's not it's not sort of like double cream it's sort of like weird kind of uht kind of thing or vanilla uh, or, or yeah or flavored cream i was driving through Ireland, stopped for a coffee at a petrol station and obviously it had some sort of very elaborate self-service coffee machine with about a thousand different options but i couldn't find the just plain coffee one so i'm not having like a a hazelnut gingerbread pumpkin uh bacon probably uh <laughs> it actually was quite nice it just didn't taste of coffee um so so the coffee is weird uh the weather was was fine i mean iowa was so freezing that by the time i got to new hampshire it felt kind of balmy uh so uh i i've uh, i've just been broken in that way what about the chlorine washed chicken are you, are you avoiding the chicken no i mean the, the food the food is the food is great i mean in, i thought i was getting scurvy in iowa uh, it was particularly hard. To, I mean, David and I basically went to a, a barbecue restaurant opposite our Airbnb every yeah. day. They grow corn and potatoes. As a yeah. Crowd. Also, as we learned, the uh, biggest pork exporter of uh, pork producer and exporter of any uh, state in America. Uh, a weird story is that is that Trump's ambassador to China is a guy called Terry Branstad, who was the governor of Iowa for for a couple of decades, in fact. And the reason Trump made him ambassador to China is because when he was a more junior official in Iowa. Uh, he was in charge of agriculture and was visited by a um, a junior Chinese official who was in agriculture in China. Anyway, his name was Xi Jinping. Uh, wow. And this, this slightly strange... Uh, they became best of friends. Yeah, they? former Iowa governor with a moustache has parlayed uh, that uh, brief visit from young Xi Jinping into being the US ambassador to China, which is quite an important job. As Liz Trust will tell you, pork markets are, um, are very important. Um, ben and David, you've also been in America for a bit longer. What are the things that you miss most uh, from the UK? Let's start with you, David. Uh, PG tips, uh, marmalade um what else um chocolate uh, the, the whole I, I need care packages uh, on a regular basis <laughs> well, you, well you've, you've you've named some brands there i'm sure they'll be in touch uh, what about you ben <laughs> i think i miss uh pessimism self-doubt <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem you spend your whole you spend your whole time in la that's your that's the problem everyone is relentlessly upbeat and self-improving and it's exhausting God, it sounds awful. There, there is a there is a genuine difference I've really noticed in in you know if you're a journalist and you go to an event in the UK that's or the US, you want to talk to people there, and that's called the box popping. Uh, and you're you know in the UK, I'd be so awkward about it and embarrassed and ashamed and sort of sizeable up to these people and go, oh, well, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but I'm from a newspaper, you know, sometimes can we talk? And they'd, they'd basically go uh, no, or if they didn't say no, they'd say yes, but say no with their face. <laughs> um, whereas in the US, you know, I started with that awkwardness, but you know, I suddenly realised people are, you know, they want to talk to you. They they're desperate to talk to you. They're very very happy to share their opinions, uh, you know, and they have lots of them. Uh, you know, they make great conversation lists uh, because they are, you know, much more forthcoming generally, not just talking about politics. I mean, you know, I've ended up sitting in bars and discovered that actually it's quite important where you sit because if you sit near someone, they're going to start talking to you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, ended up having a very weird, very long conversation with a barman the other night who it turned out was a, was a massive fan of uh, the former Stoke manager, Tony Pulis, uh, which was really weird. Uh, we had a long discussion about his defensive tactics uh, just because I'd sat at that, that bit of the bar. But no, I mean, pe- 
Americans are keen to talk about politics and um, that is helpful journalistically, but it's such a cultural difference uh, that, that people are really, you know, happy to talk to strangers and, and you know, actually in, in my experience, you know, also without rancor. I think in the UK that kind of conversation could end up pretty bitter pretty quickly. But uh, I mean, I witnessed in New Hampshire on on the evening of voting, in fact, a discussion between a Republican and a Bernie supporter, which was pretty convivial, actually, uh, you know, while disagreeing. I mean, I, I don't know how true that is generally. I mean, I suspect from America's sort of broader divisions, it's probably not. But um, in that case, it was it was quite good spirited. Henry, Henry, when you went to the Trump rally, what kind of reception did you get as a reporter from the people attending the rally? They were really, really happy to talk. I mean, of course, there was the customary booing of CNN. I think the New York Times was named specifically at various points by Trump as well. But no, they were very, very eager to talk. One guy actually actively came up to me because he'd heard me talking to someone else and said, oh, you're English. I love Nigel Farage. Um, which does give you a flavour for, you know, not just who Trump supporters are, but the sort of globalisation of uh, right-wing politics. Mm, mm. I've been asked several times about Tommy Robinson at the at the, at the New Hampshire Trump rally I went to. He wasn't on your list of things you miss about Britain, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, cause he, because I get asked about him over here. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was going to say that's the perfect time to end it, but it's a bit of a sour note to end on. Lovely to speak to you, gents. Hopefully we'll check in again as we hurtle towards um, your latest round of predictions being proved incorrect. Massive thanks to uh, Ben Hoyle. He was in California, but he will be heading to Nirvana for the weekend and then Super Tuesday in a fortnight. Will you all be there? How does it work? How do you cover four states with three of you? 14 states. Ben, ben is in charge of, of the of the West and... Um... And we're in charge of the of the east. Matt, when uh, I, I first took the job uh, over here, my predecessor in Los Angeles was Reese Blakely, and uh, he said to me, I, I asked him basically exactly that question: How does the, the work get divvied up? And he said, "Everything west of the Rockies is yours." <laughs> <laughs> that sounded very imperious. Yes, all all from your garage. <laughs> uh, massive thanks to Ben Hoyle, Henry Zeffman and David Charter. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen. And you can sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But also there's a new American elections email which Henry is doing, which is launching this week, which you can find at thetimes.co.uk forward slash bulletins, where you can sign up to loads of emails. Uh, massive thanks, uh, gents. Great to speak to you. For me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. <laughs>